Welcome to the Passages Podcast. This is Christy Cooney of thestateofthearts.co.uk. My guest today is John Lloyd. He's a contributing editor at the Financial Times and co-founder of the Reuters Institute for the Study of Journalism at the University of Oxford. He's the author of numerous books on politics and media, most recently, Journalism in an Age of Terror, Covering and Uncovering the Secret State. John, thanks so much for coming on. Thank you. So the passage you've chosen is Robert Burns's a man's a man for all that. So I'll ask you to start the episode by reading it through. Good, thanks. Is there for honest poverty that hings his head and all that? The coward slave we pass him by, we dare be poor for all that. For all that and all that, their toils obscure and all that. The rank is but the guinea stamp, the man's the gout for all that. What though on homely fare we dine, wear hodden grey and all that, he tools their silks and knaves their wine. A man's a man for all that. For all that and all that. The honest man, their tinsel show and all that. The honest man, though heirs the poor, is king of men for all that. You see yon berke called a lord, for struts and stairs and all that. Though hundreds worship at his word, he's but a coof for all that. For all that and all that. His ribboned star and all that, the man of independent mind, he looks and laughs at all that. A prince can mark a belted knight, a marquis, duke, and all that, but an honest man's abun his might, good faith he manna for that. For all that and all that, their dignities and all that, the pith o' sense and pride o' worth are higher rank than all that. Then let us pray that come it may as come it will for all that, that sense and worth o'er all the earth shall bear the gree and all that, for all that and all that it's coming yet for all that, that man to man the world o'er shall brothers be for all that. Thank you so much. Um, I'll ask you why you chose this poem. And it being Robert Burns, it might be worth unpacking the, uh, the language a little bit as you go. Uh, I think the reason I chose it, and you know, I know the reason I chose it, was if you were brought up in Scotland as I was, uh, Burns is around you all the time in a way, I think, that for uh, an English person, there is no equivalent. I mean, there are, of course, great, more great English poets. Than, than in Scotland. But Burns, for some reason, possibly because he, he genuinely was a poor man for most of his life. He was what the Russians used to call an upper peasant. He had um, a small holding, or a number of small holdings. His family did. His father had been one of the gardeners who laid out that garden in the middle of Princess Street in, in Edinburgh. Uh, he then bought a small holding and then another one and another one, Burns inherited it um, and wrote in the evenings after a hard day's ploughing. So there's that. He's, he's common stock, as it were. Secondly, he was a, a romantic. You can have another view of that, that he fathered a number of, of illegitimate children and strewed them around the place. And he became, he was taken up by the Edinburgh literati, really in his mid-late 20s. He was a success early, uh, and but never made much money. 
neither then nor now do you make much money out of poetry. And he he worked as a customs officer and died in his uh, uh, in his late thirties. So he had this mixture of peasant upbringing, romanticism, early death, and a mixture in his poetry of of poems like the one I've just read, uh, Man's a Man for All That, in Scots. But Scots, which was probably intelligible to, to non-Scots speakers, and also to English, and he wrote in English as well. So he had, had both. And he was the, I would argue, I mean, literary people argue that he was the first real romantic poet. He was the one who broke the Augustan mold and opened up a, a vista for um, for the English romantics and others. Romantic, uh, both in that he wrote reams of love poetry. He wrote a lot of songs, another reason for his popularity, because the songs are still sung. You know, my mother used to sing Burns songs when she was working. And, and that probably is still the case. They've been set to, to different um, tunes, different settings. Uh, but they're still played in, you know, in pubs by by folk groups. So he's he's remained part of the Scots identity. You get him whether or not you're a literary person and read poetry and read novels and you know, go to university and read English literature. You 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 get him in a way that you can't avoid him. And of course, there's the famous Burns Supper in January where people get drunk and eat haggis and so on <laughs> and do the toast to the lasses and uh, uh, recite Ode to the Haggis, which is in more or less unintelligible Scots. Uh, Fair for your honour, sonsy face, great chieftain of the pudden race, a binyamoy, you attack your place, pinch, tripe or firm. Will are you worthy, your grace, as langs my ear? And that <laughs> goes on that way. <laughs> but it's... Uh, it's a kind of a source of pride, partly in the the rather schizophrenic view that Scots have, both of themselves and of the English and of the UK, a kind of half comradely, half uh, not not enmity, well, perhaps some nationalists, but but with a kind of sense of loss, I suppose, a loss of a of a national identity, which is usually well under control. And which runs through Burns as well. I mean, it's, there's still, I think, a debate uh, among people who care about these things whether or not Burns was a nationalist. Mm. Of course, he was born decades after the union of the parliaments and after Great Britain was 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 formed. But many, many people, especially literary people, still regarded that as a bit of a betrayal. He didn't write directly, but there's hints, you know, here and there, a bit like. There are hints in Shakespeare that he was a Catholic. There's hints in Burns that he was, you know, he was a nationalist uh, here and there. Though so he worked for the customs, which was a, um, a British service. The other reason, I think, and the more obvious reason in some ways, is that this, like other poems that Burns wrote, but this one much more directly, is a um, an affirmation of equality mm. at a time when you know, the uh, the aristocracy was still very powerful. Money, you know, which was, you, know, you were having the, the beginnings of a, a truly capitalist economy in Scotland, somewhat later than in England. So wealth became conspicuous. Edinburgh, 
and Glasgow was becoming Glasgow was becoming the big tobacco trading and slave trading uh, town. So by the middle of by the beginning of the nineteenth century, that was outlawed. Uh, and here was this man plowing the fields, but dreaming, able to write, able to read, uh, and developing his art, um, and seeing the society around him and reacting as a, an egalitarian, if you like, an early kind of um, instinctive socialist, and writing stuff like, is there for honest poverty, um, a man's a man for all that, stressing the fact that everybody was equal. That you know, of course, he's using man rather than person. So you could argue that that half the human race was cut out. But by man, I like to think he also means he also means women. Mm. Well, there's. I mean, you mentioned um, the Edinburgh Literati there at one point. I found this this great quote um, on the way that he's um, sort of romanticised. It says the Edinburgh Literati worked to sentimentalise. Burns during his life and after his death by dismissing his education and referring to him as a quote heaven-taught plowman, which I thought was a lovely phrase. But drawing on that, what you've just been saying there about egalitarianism, there's something interesting about this poem, isn't there? That if you read, you know, it's not just you know arise, you workers from your slumber. It's you might get to reap the fruits of your labor one day. Um, but what's more valuable? is honesty and sense and integrity, and those are things that you already have. Yes, there is that, that the the man of dignity, uh, the man who doesn't bow his knee, uh, who, who doesn't take on the, kind of the appurtenances, appurtenances or the behavior of a slave, is, is the ideal man, uh, the ordinary man, the working man, who doesn't, who has got a sense of self-worth and dignity. Is important, but he's also saying in the last verse he's he's kind of he, he goes from that quite detailed um, description he goes into a sudden if you like burst of of sunlight uh, mm. that that you know has come it will and all that 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 man to man the brother the world or shall brothers be and all that so he's kind of. It's almost like you know, like um, like Marx in his Romantic period, that communism will bring the workers of the world, the people of the world, together, and there will be a kind of revolution. Of course, he doesn't refer to revolution, but he talks about brotherhood, that that everybody will see their equality, and the people that Jon Berke called a lord would no longer see it as as his right to lord it over, to command, and to take the fruits of the labor. Of the ordinary people, so he, it's it, it's a it's a testament both to individual dignity and also to a kind of to um, an ending, a global ending uh, of inequality. Mm. This is an interesting point then about this last stanza, the way it opens up, because particularly that line that you quoted, "As come it will for all that." And I wanted to ask you about that because you were a, you mentioned Marx and you were a, um, a member of the Communist Party in the seventies. In and when one listens to old leftists <coughs> talk about, Thanks very much. sorry, excuse me, <laughs> no, no. Um, the, to leftists of that era, the sixties and seventies, um, there, there's a real sense of this um, tangible, inevitable image forming in the air. Mm. 
of a world that was going to be different mm. to the one in which they, their, their, their parents grew up. That's where they were going to grow up. And that, and that definitely came to pass in certain respects, in, culturally it did. Mm. Um, but not in the sphere of economics, where arguably it would have been much more consequential. Mm. So I wanted to talk about that mindset as come it will for mm. all that. Does that inevitably lead to um, defeat or bloodshed? Or might it be realisable? Or is the real question one of whether um, the politics of hope, as it's now more rather lamely termed, might that serve a purpose regardless of whether or not it's ever realised? Well, it's a complex question, but to, to unpack it a bit, I think, uh, I mean, I wasn't a communist very long, but uh, long enough to share in the, the kind of the utopian ideals. But at the same time as that I've joined, uh, many more people were leaving. So that, that communism as an organized force in the 70s was already declining quite rapidly, not just in the UK, which it, where it had never been strong, but everywhere, even in its Western heartlands like uh, France and, and Italy. Um, uh, by the 80s, even the Great Italian Communist Party was, you know, was beginning to falter and then changed into a, into what it now is the Democratic Party. So, so you were seeing a, a decline in communism because communism, although it had these glorious ideals, also was hobbled by and in the end made its membership ashamed, at least in my case, but and others as well, of of its record in government or its record in power, especially in the Soviet Union, but then also in China. So that two enormous countries with communist um, com communist states had some of the bloodiest, in fact, both even bloodier than the Nazis' histories, which in both cases they had extremely inadequately come to terms with or not come to terms with. So you had that burden you had the mixture of idealism and yet the burden of uh, of the horror of what communism does when it's got power. It was difficult to, to think of the British Communist Party being that bloody, <laughs> or indeed being that efficient in order to be efficiently bloody. Hmm. But still, there were many in it. And the uh, David Aronovich, who came from a communist family, did a book recently about his family, which which portrayed that really vividly and very well, the kind of dedication of communist families so that, the, that both he, both his, his father, who worked for the Communist Party, was a full-time organiser, and his mother um, were out every night until 10, 11, organising. That was their life, their hope, their belief, and they lived in a kind of a self-enclosed world. I wasn't in long enough to be that, but uh, some people whom I knew there and indeed respected, where you had to respect their dedication, their sense that equality was, was something that they should and could fight for, including, uh, by the 70s it was less difficult, but before that, including things which we now take for granted, sexual equality, not so much gay rights, that was regarded as being a bit embarrassing, although later it came up. Mm. And of course, racial equality, above all. So they were, you know, they, that there was a series of admirable positions that the party took before others, including other, other groups like the, like the Labour Party. So there was a kind of a, 
although its history and its practice in the 20th century was at least as bloodstained as Nazism, you had the you had the paradox that you could believe in as a Western member, work for, and live your life within communism in a in a kind of zone of of enlightenment ideals, which you know you were looked around at the rest of society impatiently, thinking, why are these people not seeing this, not joining us, not making a, a world which was which is as is as perfect as humanly possible. So yes, it it uh, as shall brothers be and all that was part of the sub substratum really mm. of uh, that. What then do you think explains Robert Burns's endurance as a left-wing figure? Is it something? Is it to do with you were talking earlier about him himself came from a very mm. um, poor background, so most of the ports of call um, for anyone trying to sort of <clears throat> dismiss a left-wing writer or think of the kind of champagne socialist or whatever it might be don't apply. Is it is is that what it is, or is that is it is it something about the the way that he's tied up with the Scottish identity? Or I think it's, it's certainly well. First, that that it isn't just a man's a man for all that. It is it is throughout his poems, the Crofter Saturday Night, Twar Dugs a Tale, the songs very often, um, and you know the longer pieces like uh, like Tam O'Shanter, which is you know my my favourite. Um, they are they're not explicitly like a man's a man an expression of both personal and and universal uh, equality but they're they're kind of assuming as it were Tamashander is about you know a, an ordinary man a peasant like like Burns a peasant a bit above you know just grubbing the fields perhaps with his own small holding but that kind of class they're all set in that kind of class and they also are very much anti uh, anti hypocrisy there's one uh, there's a poem called to there's a poem called te a moose to a mouse mm. there's another one called te a louse <laughs> and lice of course were much more common in public life than they are now and it's it's off the author seeing a louse, uh, seeing a pretty girl sitting in front of him in church with a, a bonnet on and seeing a louse crawl out from her collar somewhere and climb up her hair and into the bonnet, un, unknown to, the, to the, the girl herself who is, you know, who's regarding herself as well-dressed and, you know, um, a real catch for somebody. Um, and he then addresses the, the kind of the... the, the division between how we present ourselves, how we think we are seen by others, and how we actually are. The louse becomes a kind of, of the interior of, of the person, the, the unspoken. And it has this line, would that God, the gift to give us, to see ourselves as others see us, which is you know, a wonderful couplet because it's, it's saying appearance like in a man's a man for all that, the appearance of the well-dressed man or the, the well-dressed woman is only appearance underneath as a human being with a louse crawling over her, um, as, you know, like it, like it might happen to a, a poor man. So that runs through it. And that, I think, is the basis of 
what people like to find in Burns, or do find in Burns. A kind of anti-hypocrisy. Not many people speak up for hypocrisy, so it's always popular <laughs> to decry it. And and also, you know, just the... I mean, most people would, would now say that, you know, everybody's equal. Of course, they're not actually equal materially, but equal in the terms of their, their civil persons. We're equal before the law. We're equal... Uh, in voting, you know, have equal political rights. So there is that, but what you were saying as well, it, it, it goes into a, a certain sense of Scottishness, which is, I would say, to a degree at least self-serving. That is that the, the Scots' identity is very much, uh, still is, I think, that to stress Scottishness is to stress a certain kind of working class or certainly not upper class. Of course, there are many upper class Scots, there are many rich Scots, but the self-image is of somebody who isn't like these posh English. And so there's an easy fit between Burns' radicalism and this, as I say, rather self-serving image of ourselves, more egalitarian, more democratic, more caring for the for about poverty, um, superior in some ways to the English, which is an echo in itself of what, when Scotland was much more religious, and indeed England was much more religious than it is now, that the Scots saw their Presbyterian Protestantism as superior morally to to English to English Anglicanism, which they regarded as essentially Catholicism with the Pope cut off. And that sense of superiority, of almost racial, but, but certainly religious superiority, has passed, has been secularized mm. into this sense that we are more demotic. We are closer to the reality. Um, our genius uh, is one of realism as against the, you know, the, so there's a, there's a kind of cardboard image of the, of the English, and as well as a cardboard English of the Scot, which is still very powerful. I mean, I can, you know, I can as well resonate to it, even as I dislike it, <laughs> because it's in everybody. It's, it's, you know, like culture is much more powerful than the reason, and it enters into you. And you know, I remember, again, my, my grandfather, who was a sort of working class tradesman, who is very, very strongly Protestant, strongly um, um, anti... I mean, luckily he died before I, I joined the Communist Party because he would have hated it, but uh, he... Very reactionary, really. I mean, a man of the empire uh, had worked on the kind of Joseph Conrad-type shipping lines for most of his life, merchant seaman. Uh, when, when some Scots student stole the Stone of Schoon, which was under the coronation throne in Westminster Abbey. These were the days when Westminster Abbey was open all night, uh, and brought it back to Scotland. The Stone of Schoon had been the stone on which the, the, the uh, Scots kings had been crowned. It was then, when the two countries were united, it was taken down as a symbol of unification under the English throne. It was stolen and brought back to Scotland. My, my grandfather, I wasn't around at the time, but my, my grandfather exulted in that. It was a wonderful thing. My grandmother said he'd never, she'd never heard him laugh so much. <laughs> and so it was a kind of, you're a unionist, 
your Protestant and you and the Eng English guarantee your Protestantism, you're anti-Catholic, you're rather reactionary, but you you still have this sense that you know one in the eye for the English is is worth a laugh. So that that mixture of kind of of memory of of a religious superiority secularized into a kind of um, sense that we are we are morally superior because we're closer to reality and closer to the common folk um, is both feeds into the uh, the admiration of and the, the the connection to Burns and is fed by it mm. because Burns himself used that I think uh, probably quite consciously mm. so you think everything you've just been talking about there, that atmosphere that predates Burns you think does it I mean it, yes. I, I guess I kind of one of the sort of instinctive things that comes out of reading around him is that if, particularly given how much he ties into that identity, there's a temptation to say mm. or to suspect that if Burns had been a crusty old Tory royalist, the UK right now would be a quite a different place. <laughs> um, but I suspect that's to simplify it slightly. Well, actually, Walter Scott, who's the other great Scots, though not, I don't know how many people read Walter Scott now, but, mm. but you know, it was the other great Scots figure, literary figure, greater than Burns, um, middle class, came from a lawyer's, Edinburgh lawyer's family and was himself an Edinburgh lawyer. Um, he was a crusty old royalist. <laughs> I mean, he, uh, you see in, in Scott, this is a bit of a digression, but briefly, you see in Scott, uh, when he became really famous, I mean, he became the most famous writer in the world, at least in Europe for a while. Uh, all of his books almost instantly translated into French and German and Italian and so on. It was a cult of, of Scott in a way that never was, I mean, an international cult in America, of course, as well. There never was of Burns. Um, but but he, he was able to, as it were, to merge together literally. He organized um, the gala for King William II, I think. I'm not sure about that. Anyway, the um, the then king, or it may have been the the the, the prince William, came to Edinburgh uh, for a, a gala, and this was after the rising, the Jacobite rebellion had been put down some years after. There was still bitterness in the Highlands. The Highlands had been cleared. There'd been quite a lot of brutality, um, but by the 19th century, this was beginning to be put behind them and. What Scott did was to organise, to be the organiser of a huge gala in Edinburgh in which everybody wore kilts. The kilt had, had been only worn by Highlanders and was despised by the Lowlanders because the Lowlanders thought the Highlanders were, the Highlanders were a bunch of cattle thieves and barbarians. Uh, and, um, but he, he used the kilt and the tartans Many of them just made up <laughs> because, uh, you know, they, I mean, in the Highlands were poor and they weren't sitting there, you know, stripping in all these various tartans. There were different colours according to the dyes which were common in the, in the various glens and therefore the different clans, McDonald's, McGregor's and so on. But there was no, you know, 50 different tartans. That was a later commercial discovery of the 19th and 20th centuries helped by Scott, who put on this enormous display in which the prince or the king, hugely fat, uh, wore flesh-coloured tights and a kilt and a plaid around in a bonnet with a 
feather and so on. And that then brought together not just the two halves of Scotland, because lowland Scotland had been, not totally, but by and large, against the, the, the rebellion, and indeed fought against people like Adam Smith, enrolled in the, um, in the infantry uh, to fight the Highlanders, but brought together the two halves of Scotland and then brought Scotland, you know, with a good deal of kitsch into the United Kingdom. And so crusty old royalist, uh, you know, had his, had their uses. Mm. And, uh, and he was a royalist, even he was very much for United Kingdom, for the king and so on. But he was also a Scots patriot. And that's run through Scotland's literary history. John Buchan, who I think is one of the great, I mean, very reactionary man, um, but one of the great thriller writers you know, uh, and creators of characters. Uh, uh, he, was, he was the same. I mean, a man who got to the very top of the tree, became governor general in Canada and so on, and, uh, and created in his novels this, this, this coming together mixing of the, of the Scots upper classes, aristocracy, upper classes, and the English, where they both treated each other as equals through, through their, common, um, their common work in diplomacy and in the military service and in the imperial service. As he, as he had been himself. Empire was fantastically important in bringing the Scots, who, who benefited hugely disproportionately from, from it, I mean, benefited in wealth and in status. Uh, and that too cemented the United Kingdom. The argument, of course, since then uh, has been that without Protestantism, without the enemy France, a common enemy of England and Scotland, and without the empire, then what, what's left? <laughs> Hence, nationalism has taken over. I mean, it, I, I don't know if it's, if, if that, I, I think it's, there's something to that. Do you think that today that on balance plays a positive role for Scotland's image or? Burns. Yeah, well, Burns and the way he, he reinforces that. I mean, as it, this kind of comes back to what you were saying earlier, that he's a gift to a nationalist, isn't he? For mm. um, a, a figure like that. Um, yes. I mean, I was I, I watched this this poem was read out or was excuse me was sung at the opening of the Scottish Parliament yes, in ninety nine, sure. and I, watched, I was sat watching the video of it last night, and even I you know I've been to Scotland to my shame and regret um, only a handful of times, but I felt a flutter. You know, you can you can you can see, yeah, it, certainly it rings the uh, it rings the sentiments. Mm. Mm. I mean, I, I, as I was saying earlier, I think that quite a lot of the uh, the image, the self image, is self serving. I, I think that, that the Scots, perhaps as much as any nation, it certainly is a nation, if not a state, uh, on earth, have been more concerned with self-creation than, than most others. In other words, they have, they have, from a quite an early stage, sought to create images of themselves and have done so successfully. Um, there's a famous forgery um, name is for the moment escaped me, which came out, I think, in the 18th century and was regarded as, as right, which was uh, Ossian, Ossian, which was supposed to be a series of poems, or rather one long poem, which was compared, incredibly enough, to the Iliad and the Odyssey and so on, which was Scotland's myth. You know, it was Beowulf. This came out of the Gaelic culture of, of the, the North and the islands. 
and spoke to a culture which had been to, or was then, you know, f fading and and declining. Um, it was a it was a, a a forgery and was found out to be, but it was an attempt to create for Scotland a heroic and heraldic past. And throughout the the nineteenth century, which was Scotland's great century, that's when it it where Glasgow became the biggest shipbuilding city on earth and Scots engineering uh, became, Scotland became, especially the West Coast, became the engineering centre of the, of the empire where Scots who had been, sounds very self-serving, but it was true that the Scots had, had, had were better educated because there were four universities in Scotland while there were still just two in, in London, in, uh, in England. Uh, therefore, you had a surplus with too many doctors, lawyers, engineers, and so on, being produced. Well, where would they go? Well, many of them went to England, of course, but but others went, joined the imperial service, went to went to uh, India, uh, to Canada, of course, to New Zealand, to Australia, where disproportionately uh, the Scots and also the Irish, who were also similarly poor, poorer, of course. Uh, went in order to to make a living and find their fortune, and many did. So you you had a a country which was from an early stage, I think, for at least two or three centuries ago, quite conscious and self-conscious of its own uh, identity, and used literature, song, music, costume in the kilt, dancing uh, as is the word signifiers, signifiers of uh, of their nationhood in a way that English haven't. I mean, it's the English had must have had. I haven't studied it. Um, a folk tradition at least as rich and and probably much more diverse because in different regions of of England as Scotland. But but by and large, you know, you've got kind of green sleeves and that's, you know, and, and Shakespeare, of course, mm. but that's, you know, that's, it's not folk, it's, uh, whereas with the Scots folk songs have been tended, discovered, you know, curated, set to music. A Scots parliament, as you say, opens with, with, a, with a burned song, that kind of, of deliberate enfolding of a culture, not all of which is fake, much of it, most of it is not, into contemporary politics and contemporary life is something which doesn't really have a a parallel in England. Mm. I mean, England has got got a magnificent, whatever you know, also uh, exploitative history, probably greater than any other country its size. But but it hasn't done that. Mm. It hasn't. It's it's. It's more ruthless in a way. It's it's these layers of of folk and common culture exist only in shards and fragments. Is my impression. I mean, I stand, of course, to be corrected by, but I think that's probably right. And that's that remains something which which Scotland clings to and which I like. I mean, I'm I think it's a, a good thing. You know, I'm I'm glad that these things are still part of Scots culture. And they underpin this sense of, of difference. My argument, like most Scots actually, who are who tend to be anti-nationalist, 
when put to the vote, mm. uh, is that that that, that can perfectly well coexist in a country like like Britain and is better for for coexisting than separating. Um, but in the last forty years or so, what had been in my youth a joke, a real joke, nationalists were regarded as being you know being sort of people with kilts and bagpipes and and woolly dreams. Uh, um, has then become a major, extremely successful, very well organized political movement. Perhaps the most, the best organized, best disciplined political party in the in the in Britain. Well, essentially, it's, when you say that, when you use the word, uh, I think probably the I agree with a lot of what you're saying there. The, the word ruthless is interesting because it's certainly true that England has a brand, isn't it? But it's yeah. it's one that's not so interested in endearing itself no. to. That's right. Other parties sometimes the reverse. <laughs> is there then a is there a hypocrisy there on the part of yeah. when you were saying earlier about how much Scotland was part of the empire um, was in large part the reason that then they're able to separate themselves now is is marketing. Yes, I mean they yeah I think in the nineteenth century it would have been different. Uh, there's a couple of quite good books about that, uh, but there's, there's a book written by uh, an American who's not. Who's Jewish, uh, not Scot in in origin, titled somewhat provocatively that the, the Scots created the modern world, and his line is that not so much the engineering and so on, which was of course important, but it was the Scots Enlightenment, where you had, I mean that seems to me to be the, the, the genuine bit of Scotland. You had you had especially in David Hume and in Adam Smith, but in a whole clutch of others less well known. You had the development through Smith of economics, through uh, Hume, of a, of a really sceptical philosophy, which which passed into Kant and then and and then has remained powerful. I mean, a, a scepticism about all kinds of of assumptions, human assumptions, including past philosophy. Uh, but with Robinson, the creation of essentially the creation of sociology. Uh, the development of modern farming methods, and that that the, the argument in this book is that that helped create to underpin much of the work of the twentieth century, because it it and the nineteenth and twentieth century it created lines of thought and approach, not just in philosophy but in social science, which uh, which then were were built on, and became much more. You know, much much richer, but they were foreshadowed by by this explosion of intellectual excitement in in Edinburgh and to a lesser degree in in Glasgow universities, and uh, and that does seem to me to be one of the the great glories of uh, of Scotland, something which it really did give to the world, um, rather than looking inward, although somewhat I think neglected by the SNP. And of course, it also had links with the French Enlightenment, and of course with the English Enlightenment, uh, with the Enlightenment in Europe. Um, it it fed into it, but for a while at least, Edinburgh for maybe two three decades, Edinburgh was the kind of the intellectual centre of Europe in a way which London later was, Paris had been, was you know Vienna, Berlin, at different times, which was quite quite something for what was then quite a small town. And 
<clears throat> on this poem would have made Burns proud. Getting back to the poem. No, no. Well, I was going to say so. We'll have to um, wrap it up. Yeah, but that's I know that's a, I think that's a, a good note on which to end the the, the intellectual thread of, in Scotland over the. Yes, I mean I think the intellectual thread. I mean it's it's. It still is part of the self-serving thing. I mean, Scots still think their education is the best, and it's not. <laughs> but, but for a while it was, and and it came out of a kind of a moral seriousness. Partly, I think, stimulated by Presbyterian, you know, by Calvinist religion, um, but partly just because of you know education, 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 mm. which was more widespread. You know, it was, it, it was sort of the a few you know peasant lads got in and the lower middle class and the middle class, whereas in England it tended to be the upper classes for a long time. Okay. So, so on that note, I'll ask you to close the episode by uh, reading again. Reading once more. Poem. A man's a man for all that. Is there for honest poverty that hings his head and all that? The coward slave, we pass him by. We dare be poor for all that. For all that and all that. To- your toils obscure and all that. The rank is but the guinea stamp. The man's the goud for all that. What though on hamely fare we dine, wear hodden grey and all that, gee fools their silks and knaves their wine, a man's a man for all that. For all that and all that, their tinsel show and all that. The honest man though e'er say poor, is king o' men for all that. You see yon Berkey, called a lord, was struts and stairs and all that. Though hundreds worship at his word, he's but a coof for all that. For all that and all that, his ribboned star and all that, the man of independent mind, he looks and laughs at all that. A prince can mark a belted knight, a marquis, duke, and all that. But an honest man's a bun his might, good faith he manna for that. For all that and all that, their dignities, and all that, the pithosense and pride or worth are higher rank than all that. Then let us pray that come it may, as come it will for all that, that sense and worth o'er all the earth shall bear the gree and all that, for all that and all that. It's coming yet for all that, that man to man the world o'er shall brothers be for all that. John Lloyd, thank you so much for being on the Fastest Podcast. Thank you.